in the wilderness, kind of right at the early start of his ministry. So I'm reading from Luke chapter 4, 1 through to 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said, It is said, Do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is God's word. Thanks, Dave. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bow our heads together before you now and we ask you, Heavenly Father, that as we open the scriptures together, uh, now and always, that your spirit might be our teacher, your word our rule, and your glory and the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the supreme concern of our hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my brief this morning, as Joel said, is to speak about the wilderness temptation of Jesus and about uh, what that says to us, that story in Luke chapter 4, about the humanity of Jesus and its meaning for us. But I want to begin just briefly as we start, uh, not with that story, but with the story of another much more recent conflict uh, that was also fought out in the deserts of the Middle East. I want to begin in January 1991, nearly 30 years ago, when the American-led alliance commanded by uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf launched a combat operation, it was named Operation Desert Storm, against the forces of the uh, then Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein. It was not the, the last time those two nations went to war, of course, and for most of us that first Iraq war has kind of faded into the recesses of memory behind the more recent invasion of Iraq, the one that was launched a decade or so later under the presidency of George Bush Jr. But it's the first Iraq war, not the second one, that I want to call to mind for just a moment this morning. And I want to do so not in order to draw a parallel between that battle in the desert and the one that we read about a moment ago in Luke's Gospel, 
but rather to highlight a contrast between them. For those of us who are old enough to remember that first Iraq war, uh, the one fought back in 1991, for those of us who are old enough to remember it, uh, one thing tends to stand out in popular memory of that first Iraq war, for us at least, who experienced it as civilians in the West. Uh, the thing that stands out in popular memory in connection with that first Iraq war is the image of the smart bomb. Do you remember it? It was that experience, that surreal, that strange and chilling experience, really, of sitting at home, uh, watching on TV on the nightly news, while the American forces guided in their computer-controlled smart bombs to hit the precise building that they had in the crosshairs, the precise building that they had decided on from thousands of miles away. The impression that the Gulf War gave us, that first Gulf War, the dangerously influential impression that first Gulf War gave to us was the impression that you can fight a war by remote control. That you could win a war by dropping bombs from five miles high in the sky and guiding missiles in by radio signals. That you could fight a war against Iraq without stepping without ever stepping onto Iraqi soil, that you could defeat Saddam Hussein without shedding a drop of American blood. As long as you were the country with the aeroplanes and the missiles and the computers, it seemed like a cleaner, safer, more clinical way of fighting a war. More like a video game than a real war. In fact, that's why Operation Desert Storm, that first original Iraq invasion, came to be remembered in popular culture as the video game war. And it's all too easy to imagine the battle between God and Satan in much the same terms. It's all too easy to conjure up in our minds or to assume without thinking about it an image of God there in safety up in the air-conditioned control room of the universe, sending out his angels, zooming around invisibly on his errands, fighting his battles against sin and death and the devil by remote control from heaven. Some versions of the popular-level spiritual warfare literature and some sermons about spiritual warfare can often end up sounding a little bit like that. Now, this morning, I don't want to dismiss that image completely. There's bits of truth in it, yeah? But I do want to say that it's hopelessly inadequate. It's hopelessly inadequate because it leaves out the fact that the really decisive battle, the critical engagement in the war between God and Satan was fought out not by remote control, but face to face. That it was fought out not from the safety of heaven, but down here in occupied territory on enemy soil here on the earth. And that the victory was won not without casualties from five miles up in the sky, but at the cost of God's own son and by the shedding of his blood. This was no video game war. And neither is the battle, can I say, that you and I fight the battle that 
you and I wage day by day against the shadows of darkness and sin and death cast across this world by Satan, the evil one. For us too, this is a battle that is fought out in the flesh, in real time, in the real world, in weakness and struggle and pain. Yeah. And although it's the cross and the resurrection that are the really decisive battles that determine the outcome of that war, the story that Luke records for us here in Luke chapter 4 of the temptation of Jesus is part of that same campaign, part of that same struggle. And it exposes very clearly for us what it means that the Son of God humbled himself and came down to walk on our soil and to wrestle with Satan and to win the battle on our behalf. It's a critical chapter, yeah, in the story of the humanity of Jesus, the Son of God. The account that Luke gives us of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness here in Luke chapter 4 is, of course, part of a larger story that he wants us to know. And it's worth stopping just for a moment to reflect on that before we dive into the details of the episode itself. If you're familiar with the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, the bits that we traditionally read at Christmas time, you'll remember the way that there is in these chapters, Luke 1 and Luke 2, voice after voice announcing the birth of Jesus and declaring the meaning of his birth. You hear it from angels and priests and prophets and prophetesses. You hear it again and again. And the message is, over and over again in these opening chapters of Luke's gospel, the message is that this child being born cradled in the arms of those who've awaited this this child's birth. This child being born is a child who will bring salvation. And that the son being born to Mary is actually the son of God. Two episodes follow just briefly in Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 3 that start to flesh out the meaning of those two things for us. The first one at the end of Luke 2 is the one that uh, you reflected on last week, the story of Jesus in the temple. And it's a kind of foreshadowing, isn't it? The story, that little episode of the young Jesus in the temple, it's a kind of foreshadowing of the way that Simeon's prophecy, the old man Simeon's prophecy in the previous chapter about Jesus will be fulfilled. That prophecy about a sword that would pierce his mother's heart. Because it's a strange little story about losing your kid. (laughs) Yeah? It's a very human story. But in that strange little story about a mum and dad in panic because they've lost their kid, in that little story, you begin to see what it will mean in human terms that Jesus is not only the son of Mary, but also the son of God. You begin to see, played out in very human terms, the beginnings of the pain associated with that gravitational pull that he will feel all his life toward his father's house and his father's business, the work that his father has given him to do that would eventually tear him away from Mary, out of her arms, and take him from her. 
a sword will pierce your heart also. And then the second episode in chapter 3 is the story of the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Now Luke goes to great lengths to tell us that the baptism of John is a baptism for sinners. Uh, it's a baptism of repentance, he says, for the forgiveness of sins. So it's kind of a shock to the system. It's an unexplained mystery in verse 21 of Luke 3. When all the sinners are lining up to be baptised by John, and then out of nowhere Luke tells us that Jesus steps into the line, and he's baptised too. And then the mystery is deepened, really, when God speaks, when the voice from heaven speaks, and he says about Jesus, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is no sinner being baptised here. This is the one without sin. This is the son of God, the one he is well pleased with. And the language that God uses as he speaks from heaven and the fact that the Holy Spirit descends at that point upon the man Jesus there at the water in the baptism. Those two things point us back to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and to what he says when he introduces in Isaiah chapter 42, the figure that he calls the servant of the Lord. Isaiah 42 verse 1, where God says through the prophet, here is my servant whom I uphold. Here is my chosen one in whom I delight the one with whom I am well pleased. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. And in identifying Jesus as God speaking from heaven does here in Luke chapter 3, in identifying Jesus as the servant of Isaiah 42, the mystery of his baptism becomes a little clearer because it is about the servant, that servant of Isaiah 42, that Isaiah goes on to say he was numbered with the transgressors. And so the voice at Jesus' baptism is not only a vindication of Jesus, it not only identifies Jesus as the Son of God, it is also a kind of commissioning. It tells us that his mission as the Son of God on earth will be to do the work of the Father, to carry out the mission of the servant. It will be to bring justice to the nations it will be to be numbered with the transgressors. It will be to stand in the shoes of broken, fallen men and women like us to line up with the sinners and be numbered among them in his baptism and in his death. Do you see? And then there follows the genealogy of Jesus, which feels like a huge digression, but is actually placed here very deliberately, I think. It's in just the right place for the story Luke is telling. I'll talk about that in a moment the genealogy of Jesus, and then our passage, the story of the temptation here in Luke chapter 4. The whole section of Luke's gospel that begins here in Luke 4 with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, that whole section that Luke's from, runs from Luke 4 through to the midpoint, Luke chapter 9, has as its primary purpose to keep on revealing Jesus to us. It's to keep driving us to ask, who is this man? Who is this man? And it's to keep showing us in new ways what it means to say that this man is the son of God. And there's other things going on as well. For example, in Luke chapter 6, part of Luke chapter 6, 
There's that collection of teachings of Jesus that we call the Sermon on the Plain. It's a little bit like the edited highlights of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Um, Similar kind of stuff, but not quite as big. But even that is pretty brief compared to Matthew's version. Most of the stuff about us and discipleship and following Jesus, Luke saves up for Luke chapter 9 to 19 as Jesus makes his road trip down to Jerusalem. In chapters 4 to 9, before we get to the section that's mostly about discipleship and following Jesus, Luke chapters 4 to 9 wants us to know the Jesus we're going to be called to follow. We need to fix our eyes on him. And in particular, we need to know what it means for him to be the son of God. And so as we look just briefly at the story of the temptation, the focus this morning is going to be on what it shows us about Jesus and what it means for us that he and his humanity is the very son of God. In the first place, this story reminds us that Jesus, the son of God, is the one who is with us in our humanity. The genealogy that I mentioned just a moment ago emphasizes that, doesn't it? Unlike Matthew's genealogy, which takes you from Abraham to Jesus, it's very much an Israel genealogy in Matthew. Luke's genealogy takes us from Jesus back to Adam. That's the point. Because Luke wants to emphasize the fact that Jesus is not only the son of God, he is the son of Adam, the son of God. The son of Adam, the son of... He's born with a family tree that goes back to Adam. He's born as one of us, as a member of the human race. And the story of the temptation makes that same point emphatically. The Jesus that Luke writes about is not some disembodied spirit, a kind of hologram, Uh, floating in the air, looking like a human being. He's a man with a body. And when he spends 40 days and 40 nights fasting in the desert, he gets hungry and he feels weak. Luke and Matthew both go out of their way to tell us that, that after 40 days, he was hungry. It seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? I've never done more than 48 hours of fasting, I did the 40-hour famine and kind of went a few extra hours just for the fun of it. Um, but I know that even after a couple of days, I'm kind of desperate for a feed. I get hungry after two days. After 40, it would seem superfluous to point out that he was feeling a bit peckish, you know. Um, you'd think that, except for the fact that gospel writers want to emphasise the point. They want to emphasise that this battle with Satan that follows takes place when Jesus is vulnerable and frail and weak, starving. That he's not immune from the feelings that we have, that the fasting was real fasting, the kind that makes you hungry. And in the same way, I think we're meant to assume that the temptation of Jesus was real temptation. This was no charade here. No kind of going through the motions. This was no artificial game that Jesus plays out with Satan. His defeat of the devil was nothing easy or automatic or taken for granted. He was desperate for food. And the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, and he is, tell this stone to become bread. And he can. The logic 
of the devil's practical reasoning is pretty watertight, isn't it? Solid premise. He's the son of God. He really is hungry. He can turn the bread into the stone into bread. And to say no to that temptation, as, as with the other two, to say no to that temptation involves real sacrifice and real struggle. The temptation story emphasises the fact that the, the Jesus we worship and follow is a human Jesus, not a merely human Jesus, but nevertheless a genuinely human Jesus. A Jesus who knows what it is to suffer and who knows what it is to be tempted as we are. As the writer says to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 2, since the children, as us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's the Jesus we worship, a Jesus who suffered when he was tempted, a Jesus who was made like us in every way, a Jesus who is fully and truly human. But as soon as we've said that, in the very next breath, we have to acknowledge that the Jesus we worship is not only with us in his humanity, but also for us in his sinlessness. He comes down to earth not only to identify with us, to experience what we experience, but also to do what we could never do. Not only to identify with us, but to save us. You see, if you're trapped in a cave or a, a dungeon and someone calls out to you, someone kind and well-meaning calls out to you from above that they're going to come down and join you, that is a really touching and comforting thing. <laughs> yeah. It means that you're not alone in your dungeon anymore. That there's someone else to stand alongside you and be with you, tell you stories in the dark, hold your hand, put their heartbeat next to yours, be close to you, be with you. It's a beautiful thing, but it still doesn't set you free. If the only thing that we knew about Jesus was that he came to earth and that he shared our humanity and that he suffered with us and died our death, that would still be a thing to be wondered at and marvelled at every day of our lives. But it would not be in itself enough to set us free from the dungeon of sin and death. The good news the Gospels tell us is not only that Jesus comes to be alongside us, to be God with us and to experience what we experience, it is also that he comes to be for us to fight and to die on our behalf and to rise again from the dead, having done for us what we could never do.
As the writer to the Hebrews says, chapter 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so in the very same breath that we speak of Jesus being tempted in every way, just as we are, in that very same breath, he adds, yet was without sin. And those four words carry an enormous, incredible weight. You might remember the scene from that movie that came out years ago now, 20, 30 years ago, uh, that movie uh, Dead Man Walking, uh, about the murderer on death row, visited really despicable character with ugly, awful attitudes and ideas. Uh, And Susan Sarandon plays a nun who's been appointed to be a kind of spiritual advisor to him in his last days before the electric chair. Remember that movie? And she comes to him and visits him. And he tells her all his rage and frustration and anger. And he wants her to write letters for him to the governor to appeal for clemency. She visits him a number of times. And then on one occasion, she brings a Bible in. And she says to him something like this. You know you're going to die soon. You need to know Jesus. He was arrested. He was executed. I'm... In all likelihood, I'm never going to know what it would be like to face the death penalty. But he did. You're going to be face to face with him when you die. You need to be ready to meet him. You need to get to know him. And he looks back at her with this evil, blasphemous smile on his face. And he says to her, I think I see what you're saying. Jesus and me, we're kind of similar, aren't we? I think we could relate. And she looks at him in horror and says back, you are nothing like him. You raped a young woman and killed her and you killed her boyfriend beside her and he gave his life for the sins of the world. You are nothing like him. You see, you don't have to be a rapist or a murderer for the point to apply. If you and I can look at Jesus and say, Jesus and me, we're both kind of similar, aren't we? I think we could relate. If you and I can look at him and say that without at the same time seeing the enormous gulf between his sinlessness and our sin. If you or I think that we could have a relationship with God where our sin was just irrelevant, not an issue, then we haven't even begun to see Jesus for who he is. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, is the one who had created us in our image. He made us for relationship with him. But when it comes to issues of sin and righteousness and holiness, we are nothing like him. And the account that Luke gives us of the temptation of Jesus makes that abundantly clear. At the extremity of his weakness, when he's at the lowest ebb of his resources, The devil comes to him and three times tempts him to deviate from the path of trusting Jesus, trusting his father and doing his father's will. And three times he comes back with an answer of perfect faithfulness to the father. And he does that first and foremost because of his love and devotion to the father. And he does it also for us and for our salvation. He is Jesus with us in his humanity. He's Jesus the Son 
for us in his sinlessness. And thirdly, as we've already begun to say just a moment ago, the picture Luke gives us is of a picture of Jesus as the obedient son of the father. Adam was the son of God, created in God's likeness. He was tempted by the serpent and he trusted the words of the serpent and disregarded the words of God. Israel was the son of God. God says to Pharaoh in Exodus, Israel is my firstborn son, therefore let my people go. And out of Egypt, God calls his son Israel and leads him as an infant nation out into the desert and teaches him how to walk. And for 40 years, Israel is tempted in the desert. And for 40 years, they murmur and complain and refuse to live and buy and listen to God's word. And it's no accident that when Jesus is tempted, when he passes through his 40 days in the desert, when he's tempted, he replies to the devil in the words of Deuteronomy, in the words that God gave to Israel through Moses. Three times, each time, replies in words from Deuteronomy, Israel's words given to them by Moses. And, it's, and he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And it's no accident too. It's no accident that the answer he gives to the very first temptation, the temptation to turn stones into bread, is an answer that's couched in terms of how we as humans are meant to relate to the God who made us. Do you notice that? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Not just, I don't live by bread alone. And not even just, Israel doesn't live by bread alone. No, man does not live by bread alone. Listening to the voice of the God who made us, relating to him in obedience and faith, feeding on his words and depending on them and being nourished by them, these are things that are fundamental to what it means for us to be properly human, to be creaturely and finite and made in God's image for relationship with him. We're made to live by the words of the God whose word created us. And Jesus, in his humanity, shows us what proper humanity is like, living by the word of the, word, the one whose word created us. You see, when Luke speaks of Jesus as the son of God, he's speaking not only of his divinity, but also of his humanity. He's speaking of Jesus as the son of Adam, the son of God, as the son that Adam never was, the son that Israel failed to be, and as the son who obeyed his father even to death, who steadfastly carried out his mission as the servant of the Lord, who refused to use his power as the son of God to turn stones into bread for his own advantage or to throw himself off the temple tower to make himself the hero of the crowds or to bow down to the devil and bypass the suffering of the cross and become the ruler of the nations in independence of their father, his father. He refuses each one of those, those temptations and he holds on to the will of his father and he remains devoted to his father and his father's plan. And that was no easy obedience. Once again, it's the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7 this time, who talks about this and he says during the days of Jesus life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears if you think of if you ever think of the perfect prayer life as sort of wordless and silent and meditative and contemplative with no room for loud cries and tears then you're imagining a different kind of perfection from the perfection of the son of god yeah 
loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. His obedience there in the desert was a suffering obedience. And when he said no to the devil's offer of a crown without a cross, when he said no to the devil there in the wilderness, he knew already what it would cost him. And Satan leaves him, verse 13, for an opportune time. And we who know the story of Jesus know that the final round of the battle is still to come on the night before the cross, not in the desert, but in the garden. Three times again. Three times praying as a son to a father. Three times saying, your will be done. What does the story of the temptation of Jesus say to us in our own struggle against temptation and sin? What does it say to us whom Jesus taught, like him, to pray, your will be done? What does it say to us whom Jesus taught to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Well, the primary purpose of the passage, as Luke tells his story, the primary purpose of the passage is not, of course, to tell us a list of techniques that we can use to conquer sin. Um, the primary purpose isn't to give us three powerful verses to kind of pull out and pew, that's the temptation gone. It's not a kind of how-to manual for easy spiritual success. The primary purpose of the story, as Luke tells it, is to show us Jesus and to teach us to look to him. And yet, paradoxically, of course, looking to Jesus is exactly what we do need to do exactly the reminder that we do need to hear in our own struggles with temptation and sin. We don't need a technique. We don't need three easy steps. We don't need five hot tips. We need to look to Jesus. Do you see? We need to remember that in Jesus we have, as the writer to the Hebrews said, a merciful and a faithful high priest. We have one who has suffered and been tempted like us, able to sympathise with us in our weakness. We do not need another mediator. We do not need anyone else to pray to. We don't need to shrink back from Jesus as if he couldn't understand what we're going through. We pray in Jesus' name and we know that in the struggle as we call on him, he hears us and he cares and he understands and he listens with mercy. We need to remember that in Jesus we have a priest who not only sympathises with us in our weakness, but secondly, we need to remember that in Jesus we have a priest who stands in on our behalf. We have a priest who has offered up the perfect sacrifice that takes away guilt once for all. Because, of course, when we go into battle against sin, we don't go into battle as clean skins, meeting temptation for the first time. We go into battle against sin as sinners, weighed down with guilt and carrying a past, already broken, playing with an injury. And we need to know that Jesus is the one whose sacrifice has already once and for all taken away our guilt. We're not trapped in cycles of helpless guilt. We're forgiven. And we have in Jesus the one who is not only with us in our humanity, but for us in his sinlessness.
And we need to remember, thirdly, that we have in Jesus the perfect pattern of what it looks like to be devoted to the Father and dedicated to doing his will. And so when we attempted, you and I, in the great things or the small, even in the little things, the little things like the temptation to turn a few rocks into bread rolls, when we're tempted, even in the little things, we need to remember the bigger picture of the plan and the purpose of God and our devotion to him as Father and the longing God has put in our hearts, joining our spirit with the spirit of Jesus, his Son, calling him Father and wanting to do his will. And so for the sake of his pleasure, the pleasure of our Father, not because of our own pride and perfectionism, but for his pleasure, we say no to sin and we say yes to the word of God and we feed on that word again and we ask God for help to live by that word every day. Will you pray with me? Father you, Father, you didn't create us to live by bread alone, but in our finitude, in our humanity, in our frailty, in our weakness, in this flesh, you made us to live by every word that comes from your mouth. So make us people, we pray, who are humble enough to know our weakness, who are real enough to feel our dependence, and who feed upon your word and take hold of your promises and who fix our eyes above all upon your son. Thank you for Jesus in his humanity, uh, with us in our flesh and for us in his sinlessness. And to Jesus, your son, obedient in his sufferings. Teach us to trust in him and follow him, we pray. Each of us in the particular struggles that we face. Fix our eyes on him, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.